Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Room and Room Podcasts. My name's Charlotte Westwood, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about planning ahead for moving stock off pasture and getting them successfully settled down onto their winter forage crops. This is a one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group The Room and Room, proudly supported by PGG Rights and Seeds. As we head closer to winter, we're starting to think about how we're going to effectively get our stock transitioned off a pasture or maybe pasture and silage-based diet onto winter crops. So as it for anything in life, we need to be doing a fair bit of planning ahead and there's quite a bit to get our heads around, particularly for any of you that are relative newcomers to the industry uh, with regard to feeding winter crops to sheep, cattle and deer. So a fair bit to contemplate and to plan, everything from feed budgets through to the well-being both of us and our teams and of course uh, the well-being of our animals. Everyone's planning for wintering on crop will differ from other people's. It's not particularly prescriptive and it's going to be determined by a lot of the unique aspects about your farm, your business, your personality type and your approach to it the type of forage crops that you may have on hand for the coming winter, and of course the array of stock classes that you're taking through the winter this year. So hey, there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all, this-is-how-you-should-do-wintering-on-crop by any means. So rather than telling you this is how it should be done, we thought in this episode we'd cover off some of the basics of winter crop planning. We thought perhaps a checklist would be the approach we'd talk today with regard to your winter crop planning. So a series of things that we're going to cover today, you've probably already got well under control uh, and where relevant it may be just an opportunity to to rethink and, and maybe consider something you might not have quite thought about or maybe to think about doing something in a slightly different way. So in this episode we're going to cover off a range of things for stock going onto a winter crop. We're taking a little bit of a checklist kind of approach to this, so hopefully one point at a time we can go through and then you can go, yep, I've got that one under control, yes, I've got that one under control, and so on. Anyway, whatever's required, and hopefully this may be helpful for something that you haven't quite got sorted, or that you're further away from winter and you're still in the middle of planning. First and foremost, what's the most important thing with regard to winter crop planning? Well, it's like any planning uh, of the whole uh, part of the farm itself and not just for winter in isolation. It is, of course, the dreaded feed budget. Oh yes, heavy sigh, just like cash flow budgets, these things that we don't necessarily like to do, but of course is an important part of our forward planning. And hopefully we've got these things, the feed budgets, well under control before the stock head anywhere near the crop. This is just an opportunity to review how that budget's looking. So some of this will be pretty basic and you may not be that interested, but hopefully for new entrants to the industry or junior staff members coming through the system, hopefully this part about feed budgeting will be of value to you. So feed budgeting, what is it? Well, of course, it's just simply balancing the amount of feed that you have on for the coming winter with balancing up with the feed demands of your stock classes. Now, in a very simplistic way, think of feed budgeting as a little bit like a seesaw at your local kids' playground. So if you can picture that, there's a seesaw. 
on one side you might have uh, a four-year-old kid who's sitting on one end of a seesaw, but the your wee uh, son or daughter don't have a friend on the other end, so of course it's going to be unbalanced, weighted down to the side of uh, your wee four-year-old. So simply feed budgeting as your demand might be on one side, so the seesaw is heavily weighted down, as with the four-year-old. And our mission in life, if you like, with a feed budget is to balance that seesaw so that the four-year-old on one side has good fun, legs dangling in the air, well balanced, uh, hopefully by a matching child on the other side of it. That's the same with feed budgeting. We want the supply to match up with the demand. So how do we figure out feed demand? Let's start with that side of the equation or the seesaw first. Well, thankfully, it's quite straightforward to sort out feed demand. It's simply, firstly, the number of animals that you're going to have to feed through the winter on winter crop. Secondly, it's the daily feed demands of each of those animals. And thirdly, it's the amount of time that you want animals to remain off your precious pastures and to keep them on that crop so they're not eating any pasture until later in winter. So you multiply those three points together to get overall feed demand related to your crop. For many of you with larger businesses, we could be up into the sometimes the millions of kilograms of dry matter on some of the, the big corporate farms. Some big numbers when you start multiplying individual animal numbers times individual animal demand, times a number of days, some big chunky numbers. There's plenty of really good resources out there to deal with that second point that we've mentioned, which is the demand of the individual animal for feed every day through the winter. Good old Google will take you to a number of good resources. There's plenty of good ones uh, on New Zealand Beef and Lamb website, for example, and for those of you dealing with dairy stock, the Dairy NZ infamous Facts and Figures book. Well, it was a book, still is a book, I guess, if you're into hard copies or downloadable as a PDF from their website or as an app for your phone. So that's the demand and you'll see, oh, well, uh, my 500 kilo non-lactating calf dairy cow needs this much feed per day. The important thing when you see the number that they give you is to take into account that if it's kilograms dry matter eaten per animal per day or offered per animal per day and sometimes you have to look into the fine print to check that point. If the numbers are eaten per animal per day you'll need to apply your own wastage factor to allow for feed wasted during feed out on the ground for supplementary feeds or as a crop is grazed and obviously that will vary for some of you that may have a, a paddock of kale on quite free-draining stony soil in Canterbury from Summon and South Otago and Southland on much heavier soil. So we personally think it's better that you get your kilograms dry matter eaten per animal per day and then applying your own feed wastage or feed utilisation factor, whichever way you'd like to work that. So going back to the kid or two kids on the seesaw when we're trying to balance our feed budget. We need to make sure we have enough feed on offer, and that's feed supplied by us, and making sure that that balances with the demand on the other side of the seesaw. Well, he's hoping anyway. Firstly, for most stock classes, most of the diet for crop feeding through the winter will be coming from the winter crop itself. So this might be a winter kale, it could be bulb turnips, uh, swedes, forage rape, fodder meat, 
Uh, perhaps a winter cereal like oats or triticale. You'll all have a range of different crop types out there that have been planted for a range of reasons and attributes that are beyond the scope of this episode today, but we can certainly come back and explore that at another episode in the future. So aside from the winter crops that form the feed, or the majority of the feed base for your animal types through the winter, almost all stock classes are usually going to get some other tasty, additional non-forage crop type feeds to help them get through the winter in good shape. So there'll be a range of different types of non-crop feeds out there. For some of you it may be as simple as paddocks of autumn safe pasture that stock are going to graze alongside the winter crop and that's a very fit, simple feeding system where they free choice uh, a strip of grass to go with the winter crop. For many of you that may not work so well simply because there's not enough autumn pasture to help you get through the winter particularly if it frosts off in colder parts of New Zealand. So for many of you uh, stock are probably going to start off maybe on that autumn safe pasture as part of the transitioning but once they have successfully transitioned from a pasture-based diet to one that contains winter crop, you're actually going to have a greater reliance on other types of supplementary feeds, such as uh, baleage, that could be pasture baleage, lucerne or perhaps a cereal baleage as green chop or a whole crop cereal uh, silage baleage. Straw is another one that many of you uh, will be feeding or at least be familiar with, and there's a range of straw types out there. The cereal straws, of which the most popular for winter crop feeding is, is barley straw, mainly because it tends to be a bit softer and tastier than some of the harder straws, such as oat or wheat straw. For some of you, particularly Canterbury, but parts of uh, Otago and Southland as well, ryegrass straw is another popular type of crop balancing feed. And these straws are particularly good for cattle who tend to have more of an appetite for straw than sheep do. But cattle particularly will crave that fibre contained in straws and generally provided the straws are tasty, cattle will take to those really well when on winter crop. Key advantage for straw, what's twofold really, one is to reduce risk of rumen acidosis or too much acid in the rumen, but also that we'll talk about shortly during colder weather you get a good what's called heat of fermentation in the rumen from straw that helps keep animals uh, very full and warm during adverse winter conditions. Other feeds that are often fed with crop, depending on what part of the country you're in and whether it's too wet to get into crop paddocks to feed out or not. Other feeds will therefore include stack silages of various types. So again, that could be pasture, cereal or lucerne stack silage. Finally, the other type of feed on offer would be hay but of course that depends whether you can get into paddocks to feed the hay out and how far from the crop paddocks are uh, yes covered storage facilities for holding that hay so not as commonly fed but sometimes hay will be fed as well. While we're talking about supplementary feeds it's obviously time heading closer to winter to recheck the inventories of feed that you have on hand so that might be silage, baleage, straw and hay. Where possible, definitely allow for an extra amount of supplementary feed on hand just in case things don't go to plan. Well-laid plans quite often come unstuck. And look, we really know that many of you, particularly South Otago Southland, will routinely have a spare stash of supplementary feed 
given that you guys have much longer and harsher winters than the rest of us in New Zealand. So there's always a lot of good planning, and I really congratulate you guys for all of that. As we get further north into warmer climates, I think some uh, businesses aren't necessarily as well set up for contingency planning, for having spare feed in the case of adverse weather events, but we can certainly learn very much from our South Otago and Southland friends about the importance of having spare feed on hand. The final point about supplementary feeds, it's definitely at this time of year to check your straw or if hay if you have it, baleage and other feeds to see how it's looking after it was harvested back in the summer. Clearly we're looking for hay and straw for any water damage or spoilage, so any moulding that's gone on, whether uh, you've got it in a shed where the roof leaks or you've had uh, wind blowing rain into it and spoilage going on, so we want to make sure that's all clean, particularly for pregnant stock, cattle particularly. With our baleage, we want to make sure there's been no damage to your outer wrap layers. Just the usual thing, if you've um, used the forks to take it off the truck and haven't taped it up, etc. Looking for any spoilage. Even as you're starting to feed out some of the supplements, we want to be looking for the presence of ergot in seed heads. And certainly where, particularly when ryegrasses and other grass species are flowering late in late spring, early summer, if the conditions have been very wet and warm through that period, you've got a much greater risk of ergot. Now, ergot looks like little mouse droppings in the seed heads of grasses and cereals, and they contain alkaloids that can make animals quite sick in in terms of uh, causing health issues with reduced circulation of blood around the animals which can lead to things such as lameness and laminitis etc another story another day and having a really good look at silage stacks quite often at runoffs you're not seeing them every day and there's nothing worse than heading closer to winter to find that your calves have been out and run over the top, top of your stack and punched a whole lot of holes in it, letting a lot of rain in. So it's good just to just to not only do the numbers with your supplementary feeds, but making sure it all looks in good order, ready to feed to animals. Coming back to the crop, this is the most important thing of the lot to do on your checklist of your amounts of feed and therefore your feed supply coming into the winter. Again, I know the majority of you will be doing dry matter yields but just to I guess drive that point home that it's probably one of the most important things you need to be doing with regard to your winter planning. So hopefully either your rural merchant rep can do some dry matter yields on your crop or perhaps you've done a few yourself over the years and you've got the techniques sorted or otherwise of course there are some independent farm consultants and small businesses that'll do this for you. Now, in terms of a timing of when you're going to do your dry matter yields on your crop, it depends just how um, precise you want to get your feed budget or, or as best as you can. In many years, maybe your crops have been a bit slow earlier on and you're a little bit worried they're behind where they need to be, uh, or perhaps your supplementary feeds are behind and you're, you're hoping that your crop's going to catch up on you. In these cases, it's often worth not waiting until that last week of May to do your crop yields but rather bring that forward by about one month, perhaps late April, for example. And the aim of this is to give you a bit of heads up on where your crop is versus where it needs to be. So if you're short of feed, obviously we can look at reducing the demand on the demand side of a seesaw by, for example, if you're running dairy cows through the winter, doing that that last-minute yes-no pregnancy test in May and culling out empties. 
or you can feed uh, less feed to stock classes that are already at or beyond target body condition score for lambing or calving. Uh, and in the case of dairy cows, if they've been scanned early, you can feed the fat late calving ones a lot less feed than you need to feed the lighter conditioned early calving ones. So there's lots of different levers in the dairy side of it that you can look at. Or if the feed budget's not balancing, you look to purchase more feed to cover your feed deficit. You know, you might be any last minute opportunities depending on what's in the market for perhaps some more straw, particularly for your heavier conditioned animals or some baleage. Or perhaps your neighbour's got a bit of standing crop for sale uh, that you can jump through a gate or, or drop a fence uh, to access that through the winter. So that's the topic of dry matter yielding your crop. Now I've gone through the methodology, well I haven't touched the methodology at all, but I guess some, some quick tips and tricks around dry matter yielding your crop, well the most important things that we think is suggestion number one, don't rely on what we call book values for dry matter percentages of your crop. What we suggest instead is that you collect samples of your crop and send them away to the feed testing lab so that they tell you how much dry matter is in every kilo wet weight of your crop. Now, the reason for this, and for those of you who are new entrants to the industry or haven't done a lot of to do with winter crop, is that the way we yield dry matter crops is that depending on the crop type we might do quadrant cuts, uh, perhaps a hoop cut to a square metre or two square metres or in the case of the likes of fodder beet we'll do row yields and that'll give us the wet weight of the crop in that representative area or row. So of course we don't talk wet weight or wet tonnes per hectare, we talk dry matter per hectare. Therefore to convert wet weight per hectare to dry weight per hectare, we multiply those wet weight values by the dry matter percent of the crop. And coming back to these book values, well what I mean by book values for crop dry matter percentages, if you Google, good old Google, you might well find a typical dry matter percent for, let's say kale, you might have a kale crop, and the book value that Google gives you is 14% dry matter and you go, ah, that's good, no stuffing feed in bags, don't have to pay the feed testing lab will be fine. Now the trouble is dry matter percentages on crops can be all over the place depending on crop type, crop cultivar, whole lot of other factors whether it's been drought stressed or whatever and in the case of kale the dry matter percentage of the crop could be as low as even as low as 11 to 12 percent dry matter or if your kale crops had a bit of a tough autumn and it's been quite drought stressed, you might see values as high as 22 or even 23, 24% dry matter for drought affected kale crops. So if we just apply the Google book value of 14% dry matter for kale and actually your crops a lot wetter than that, so that means the dry matter percent on your crops much lower than that, based on 14%, you reckon there's a lot more feed there than what actually is there. So we have issues about stock going without feed, or you running out of feed by the time you get to the end of winter. On the other hand, if you're, the dry matter percent on your kale crop is a heap higher than 14%, especially for those drought-affected crops, you'll end up with a heap more feed on hand than what you actually need. And with that, you might end up still trying to get through that 
crop well into October, you're just embarrassed. You've still got 10 hectares left and the flowers have come through. And we don't want to be grazing stock on flour and kale for a range of animal health reasons that we'll, ca- we'll cover off that uh, with another Room and Room episode uh, over the next few months. So too much crop can be as much of a problem as not enough crop. Either way, it's a waste of feed and a real shame. So long story short, please don't rely on book values. It's not a big cost to courier away samples and get it away to a feed testing lab for the actual dry matter percent. And just one final word on dry matter percentages of crop samples. When you send samples away to a lab with your bulb crops, so that might be your swedes and your turnips and your fodder beet, yield the tops and the bulbs separately. So you have separate wet weights for top and bulb and do send samples of leaf and bulb away again separately for dry matter percent testing. And that way you can do a lot of calculations such as the total crop yield but then the bulbs as a percentage of total crop yield and other calculations that are very useful particularly when we start getting into the true nutrition of feeding animals uh, crops over the winter that will be a topic for another uh, the room and room episode suggestion number two with regard to your winter crops while you're going to the trouble of bagging up samples of your winter crops for dry matter percent testing we'd really suggest that you test the crop for nitrate levels especially if you're going to be into that crop over the next few days and for most feed testing labs that's just simply a matter of ticking another box and another small cost and while you're waiting for the tests of those nitrate samples to come back you can start to think about some contingency planning and what we mean by contingency planning is like the what ifs what are we going to do if the results from your crop come back uh, with high levels of nitrate Nitrate toxicity is another topic another day for these Room and Room podcast episodes, so keep an eye out for that coming your way soon. Or go into the Room and Room Facebook page, search Nitrate, and there's a couple of posts in there if you need to know about Nitrate earlier. Talking about winter forage crop planning, suggestion number three. Again, while we're back bagging up the samples of crop to send away both for dry matter percent testing and for nitrate, Have a think about feed testing your crop to check for nutrients such as uh, uh, ME, megajoules of metabolizable energy, crude protein, NDF or neutral detergent fibre, sugars and in some cases minerals, particularly for fodder beet. Fodder beet is quite a variable type of crop with regard to feed quality based on some recent work undertaken by Dairy NZ that was supported by the SFFF. Those results showed that things such as levels of crude protein were very variable, particularly in the bulbs. So if you check those levels before you head into winter, it's going to give you a better feel for how much, if any, say uh, phosphorus supplements that you need to apply. You really should feed test your silages and baleages also. Now the reason to feed test those silages and baleages is that it means by knowing what's the best quality then you can feed the better quality feeds and indeed perhaps your crops that contain more protein and more phosphorus you can feed those to younger stock classes that have a higher requirement than mixed age stock classes for protein and phosphorus especially with regard to fodder beet. 
particularly for those of you with dairy cows on crop, to keep an eye on both phosphorus and protein levels later in gestation as they're getting closer to springing up. Carrying on with our suggestions, we're up to number four. Getting closer to the 1st of June, we'd suggest that you recheck the pasture covers and runoff paddocks next to your crop paddocks. Your feed budget might have had you needing three and a half tonne to be there and you've only got two tonne if you've had a dry autumn. If the pasture is going to be an important part of your transitioning or running stock on and off crop paddocks during that first two to three weeks, if there's not enough pasture cover there, you again need to have a, a plan B, a bit of an idea of what you're going to do because if you have to feed more baleage than planned because you don't have as much pasture cover on those uh, those runoff paddocks that's going to eat into your winter feed supply but if you know about it earlier or suspicious about it earlier means you can develop plans how to work around that bit of a gap in your feed budget. Winter crop suggestion number five the need for room for individual animals when we squeeze them onto limited areas on our forage crop paddocks. Hey, so this is particularly a problem for your higher yielding forage crop paddocks. So we're saying fodder beet, but also if you've grown a particularly uh, good brassica crop, that we end up with like a smaller area to try and wedge large numbers of animals onto a little area. Uh, as you can imagine, if we're a, a sheep or a cow, not only this is uncomfortable for animals with regard to their limited social space, they're just like us, you like a little bit of elbow room, but as well as that social st- uh, space and therefore increased stress on the animals, we're more likely to have animal health challenges if they're squished together, particularly as they'll try and break out if they're jammed on top of each other. They'll push and shove and there's more likely that some will go over the wire. We reckon for high yielding crop it's definitely worth planning ahead and perhaps uh, when you're establishing the crop you can either plant a headland by your gate or gateway entranceways into the paddock as Italian ryegrass or just simply leaving it as a strip of permanent pasture. If your crop's already in the ground and it's cropped right up to the gateway and there is simply nowhere for these animals to go when they first start onto the crop, if it's fodder beet, for example, maybe get a a crop lifter to come in and and lift a a landing strip, I suppose you'd call it, or you do it yourself if you've got your own beet bucket, uh, to clear space not only for animals to have more room to spread out and more safely access the face of crop, But also while you're at it, if you're not using portable troughs, you can also clear a strip through to the water trough so that animals can uh, come and go and access water comfortably. So remembering this headland that you're going to clear to improve access to the crop when you're starting is likely to be in addition to other areas that you're planning for, either to plant in Italian ryegrass or to leave in permanent pasture at a higher pasture cover to protect your sensitive critical source areas. So really this starts with the planning. So you've got your critical source areas, number one, and number two, you've got the headland area so that animals can access their first break of crop in a more comfortable manner. How about suggestion number six? We're on a roll now. Stock water for animal drinking water. So from a stock nutrition point of view, stock water is actually really important. And we're presuming that all of your plans are already in place around supplying adequate stock water. There's certainly been a huge refocus on the requirements uh, for water for stock-fed crop 
over recent years. And as an industry, I reckon we should all be really proud of ourselves. It's a it's a great advance, and almost everyone is now supplying good quality stock water to stock on crop, which is just great to see. That said, we know the practicalities of movable troughs isn't that, isn't that flash. It's not the greatest job to be done, and they can be really hard work, especially in high dry matter yielding muddy crop paddocks. But stock really do benefit from this water. And of course, as owners of our stock, we are obliged to provide animals under our care with stock water, as referenced under the various welfare codes for the different species. So essentially, within those welfare codes, we must provide all of our stock with access to clean water at all times and it's simply not correct that animals get enough water from crops. Yes crops will contain a lot of water that the animals eat uh, and, and therefore that's water's released into the rumen but we do need to provide stock water through trough water as well. Needless to say, the stock water we do provide must be clean and tasty. Always get the uh, uh, attitude, if I'm not that keen to drink it, I don't think it's very fair for our animals to drink it either. Otherwise, it'll defeat the purpose if stock don't want to drink it. you got all the trouble of providing access, and they go, yeah, nah, I'm not going not gonna to drink that. And this isn't uh, particularly for those of you that supply magnesium, particularly in later stages of winter, by chucking mag chloride in the, in the trough as there's a whole bag with stab holes in it or, or meet it in. We've just got to be careful not to overdo those rates of magnesium chloride or even the slightly more tasty mag sulfate. Too much of that can taste pretty bitter as well. Or your stock, and we're talking specifically about in-calf non-lactating dairy cows, they'll simply stop drinking. And when they don't drink, they're not likely to eat to full appetite either. So thirsty stock don't eat to appetite. And that's not ideal when, we, when we're trying to keep stock well fed and in good, good body condition heading through into late stages of winter. Suggestion number seven. Well, you've no doubt by now got plans in place for a lot of stuff and hopefully including what you plan to do during winter storm events. Now winter storm events influence a lot of things, um, not only animal well-being but people well-being and safety, sliding tractors around and um, and bikes around and muddy crop paddocks etc. So I suppose we're focusing largely on the animals here and by inference that helps people too because we're more comfortable when we see our animals comfortable. But I suppose look, we're all in this industry because we care a whole heap about our stock and none of us like to see animals out in filthy weather really suffering. So we'd be happy to say almost all people in, the, in this industry will be doing the right thing for their animals during storm events. And that's good. But certainly over the last few years, there's been a greatly increasing focus on the animal welfare requirements of stock on crop during these cold winter months. So even though majority of passionate individuals want to do the right thing by their animals, yeah, there's more of a um, an eye on how we are managing stock on crop, social media, etc. You've likely already got a, a fixed place and plan for winter storm events and as in what you're going to plan to do, where the stock might go, whether they can stay on crop if it's a sheltered paddock or whether they've got to get off crop to go to a paddock and largely be fed straight supplements while I've got good shelter. Lots of different plans and it's not for us to tell you how because you know your farms and the individual paddocks really well. Essentially, when we're trying to consider what happens during winter storm events, we need to factor in three aspects of where... Uh, very uncomfortable cold conditions can impact on stock. 
Firstly, we've got obviously the low temperatures in the middle of winter. Secondly, we've got the effects of rain or snow or sleet or whatever, and the wet coats or the wet fleece in the case for for uh, you know coats for cattle and deer and the fleece for sheep, depending on how much wool they've got on. And then the third aspect of it is wind chill. So you've probably all seen with Met Service or your favourite weather that your um, weather forecasters that you follow is that there'll be an a- actual temperature and then there'll be effects of wind chill. So even for humans, the effects of wind chill are strongly acknowledged. So something that might have been three degrees when you add wind chill in can feels like. Well, the same thing happens obviously for animals. So as ruminants with a ruminant side that creates warmth in its own right, our ruminant stock can tolerate low temperatures really, really well. In fact, quite often they're more stressed by heat stress than they are from cold temperatures. However, cold alone, when we add in that wet coat or fleece and we add wind chill in, then, oh wow, it's really getting just too cold. So the shelter during a storm is simply so important because if you have the three points, the temperature, the wet coat or wet fleece and wind chill, the shelter's aiming to take the wind chill out of that three-way equation and reducing the stress on that animal. Hope your plans are all in place, but just an awareness that social media and everything else out there, but as well as just genuine desire to do the right thing by our animals, we do need plans in place to account for winter weather. Just one more point on the perils of storm events and very cold winter weather. Do remember from a nutritional point of view the value to our ruminant stocks of feeding quite fibrous feeds such as your your tasty palatable straws, perhaps a higher dry matter percent baleage uh, or if you're set up to feed it even hay. Now how this works is that these through the effect of what's called heat of fermentation in the rumen actually increase the heat within the rumen and do help animals to a point depending on how cold it is to stay comfortably warm particularly if they're not exposed to wind chill. Obviously the benefits of this are only as good as how tasty and what the quality's like of these high fibre feeds. If we've got wheat straw yeah on paper if it's inside the rumen that should work for heat of fermentation to keep them warm but then not many animals like to eat wheat straw unless they're particularly hungry. So that's something to think about uh, and I think many of you if not most of you already are aware of this about feeding out not only more feed with the onset of cold weather as a storm event but also the higher fibre feeds uh, and many of you will be already already be doing this. As well, the benefits of a nice room and chocker full of a slower digesting fibrous feed during these cold weather events are that our stock are going to be a little bit more content. Uh, hopefully they're going to be less likely to pace up and down and round and round and churn up a lot of mud during rough weather. So there's some certainly some benefits of feeding out some good quality, tasty and yet fibrous feed when storm events are forecast. We're up to suggestion number eight. We're on a roll now, definitely on a roll. One other thing to think about is, in terms of your winter planning is, is have a bit of a, a head count, I guess, on the numbers of standards and reels that are stashed away wherever you hide them in the back of a shed, including enough to double fence your crop face 
and of course defence of critical source areas. It's always amazing, fascinating how many reels and standards go walkabout during the rest of the year over the summer, <laughs> for goodness sakes. So definitely time, um, particularly with a few supply chain issues at the moment, to do a bit of a count up and make sure that you have got enough for enough uh, all of your various crop faces, including that double fencing. While we're on the topic of standards, ah, particularly cattle, we've all got those individual animals, especially with the dairy ones you know from year to year, who are the ones that push standards around, knock standards out of the ground and take uh, them and their mates across into a new area of crop uninvited. So clearly hot standards are particularly good for those high-risk crops where you just can't afford to have breakouts, particularly during transition, such as fodder beet, because breaking out when you're transitioning onto fodder beet is where a lot of our acute ruminacidosis and deaths come from. So hot standards are something to think about. As well, it's a given. Check power, check, check, and check again. So get some fence testers. Spread around your team so everyone's got their own. These are especially important when you're feeding tall crops like kale. So if kale falls across a wire or a cow reaches out and pulls on a leaf and pulls that kale plant across it and you're shorting your wire out, obviously we're more likely to have breakouts. So, And breakouts are certainly our number one enemy and most common cause of animal health problems and deaths, especially during that first couple of weeks. So plenty of power. And while we're on power, also contingencies for those storm events uh, that you can get remote uh, areas of fencing, get some portable units out to those in the case of loss of power. Because again, oh, breakouts, oh, risky at any stage of winter, but particularly during transitioning. Staff training. Well, look, I guess the room and room is very much about the nutrition of stock, but hey, at the end of the day, the most important part of our business is, is our staff and their well-being and making sure everyone's up to speed. It's always a shame in terms of when your best staff move on. Well, it's a shame at the best of times, but, you know, people that finish up on at the end of May and everyone's on the move at the same time, we're getting stock on crops. So I've always pondered that's it's a bit of a shame with that timing. It is what it is. So if you've got new team members coming in, maybe some that are a little less experienced, it's definitely worth trying to get them together, even even if they've got some way, if they're reasonably local of getting to you before they leave their, their job they're at now, and get them all together, sitting them down with your more, more experienced team members, maybe chuck on a barbie or pizzas or whatever, and to hatch a plan for the coming winter of having stock on crop. It's going to be up to you um, how much of the information is shared, but we, we think it's really useful that everyone's on board, they understand the feed allocation stuff, how different stock classes are going to get managed, why some stock classes are going to get kale, for example, and others will get fodder beet or vice versa, what types of feeds are going to be fed, and how it's going to be safe for those feeds to get fed out and people slip sliding around in muddy crop paddocks. You might choose to cover transition planning, how you're going to do your fencing, how you're going to get stock water. So it's important for all of that uh, to get sorted really well and everyone's on the same page. It's handy to review uh, what staff need to be looking for with regard to animal health related disorders, whether that be bloat or ruminacidosis or metabolic disease for dried off dairy cows, clearly keeping an eye out for mastitis, uh, lame animals, etc., so maybe for your new staff, for less experienced ones, you know, setting up a bit of a mentor, you know, teaming up, pairing up your, your better experienced team members with those less experienced, 
that sort of stuff can be really helpful, particularly for new people coming in that might otherwise be a bit stressed by, overwhelmed about having to know it all. While we're on that topic of animal health, quite often even for more experienced team members, they might be used to the same old message every year and they kind of zone out. Don't we all? We're all guilty of that, if you've heard it before. Sometimes it's good to bring some third parties in just to refresh some of the messaging around training for getting stock onto crop. So that might be your vet, if you've got a good relationship with your vet, bring them in, part of the barbie or the pizza session and get them to just to review some of the things we need to look at with stock of getting on crop from their viewpoint. Might just be fresh set of eyes, fresh set of ideas, uh, even for the most experienced teams. And finally, and very finally, suggestion nine, and nine suggestions are by no means totally comprehensive, but finishing up, and again, this isn't on the animal nutrition side of it, but we're just talking again for a second point about people, very much people first. Like, we get that transitioning stock onto crops, especially fodder beet, can be a very busy time, and often stressful for staff if, you know, perhaps... They're not that experienced, yet they know, you know, some of the concerns about transitioning stock onto all crops, but particularly uh, fodder beet. And looking out for everyone, getting staff to look out for each other, running rosters that hopefully are going to be sensible enough that allows people time off, time to, to relax with their families and for them to eat well, good meals, uh, maybe opportunities to get people together once a week for a, for a big feed sharing from a well-being point of view, crock pot recipes, um, ideas for, for fast food that's not two-minute noodles, because our people are very much a critical part of our farming businesses. We love our stock dearly, but for our people to look after our stock, our people have to be really well too. Well, we're wrapping up now on this episode on planning ahead for winter cropping, there's a lot of other winter cropping topics that we can cover in subsequent episodes. But in the meantime, hope that you've enjoyed catching up and covering off on some of the points that we think might be useful to be thinking about as we head into another winter of crop grazing. Please do join us again very soon here at the Room and Room podcast series. I've been Charlotte Westwood talking with you today about winter crops. I'm part of the PGG Rights and Seeds team based at our research farm, Kimmahir Research Centre in Lincoln. Hope you can join with us again very soon. Enjoy your day. Cheers. Cheers.